So, I'm no stranger to prison. I know what it's like to be shackled and chained. I know what it's like to be in a courtroom and be declared guilty. I know what it's like to be taken away from my family, be in a prison cell all by myself. I was so angry, angry at myself and just angry at my decisions. Angry at where I had allowed myself to be and I wound up in what they call solitary confinement where I did about 180 days. This chaplain comes by and he slides me un under, the under the door, a small Bible, immediately in sec I just kicked it right back to him. Right away he just pushed it back in. Again, with my foot I just shoved it back. He stands up and he looks at me through the small little glass window. I took it in my hand and showed it to him. All the time God was using him just to remind me of something I already knew. I'm a free man, but I was a free man in there. I went to work for the chapel, had church services. We glorified God every day, sometimes louder than we do here. And we had services on the pound, out in the grass. And the only reason why we could do that is because although the world found me guilty, my Jesus called me saved. And this day I'm saved, I'm free, I'm redeemed. I'm so grateful and thankful for this life that God has given me. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Ray Rod, for sharing God's story through you. And every one of us have a story, a way that God has worked in our life as we kind of stand before Him and weigh that reality of, of where we are. How do we balance our guilt in light of His grace? The truth is, there are words, there are phrases that, that change our lives. And we're going to talk about some of those over the next several weeks, but I, I think about this one. Man, here's one that'll change your life. I do. <laughs> yeah, so when you say those words, I mean, you're expressing a commitment you have to another person for the rest of your life, a relationship. <laughs> this is life-changing. How about this? I'm pregnant. Yeah, that, that's life-changing at any moment, but uh, while God's never caught off guard, if it's become unexpected to you, then it's really, really life-changing, isn't it? Uh, big words. Um, how about these words? I want a divorce. And those words not only break a relationship, they tear apart a family, a community. There are words like these, you're hired, yes, and you want to go buy a house now, or you're fired, and you wonder, how am I going to pay my mortgage? And then there's this phrase, we find the defendant Guilty, Your Honor. I like all the courtroom dramas. 
Maybe it's because in my plan, I wanted to be a lawyer. I really did. And, and some of you are old enough to remember this. I grew up watching Perry Mason. <laughs> and, and then as I got a little older, man, I loved watching Matlock. I mean, so, um, man, I, I, I wanted to be a, a lawyer. And so to watch these shows where at the end of the trial, the chairman, the foreman of the jury is, is going to declare a verdict. And every time I hear that, I'm reminded that, you know, in our lives, in our eternal existence, a, a verdict will be declared over us. Now, I, I want to set the stage. We've gathered here in a church, so we, we come recognizing that most who gather here at least profess to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's what takes place in the Christian church. Some of you may not yet be there. We believe you're here maybe today for that purpose, and we want to give you that opportunity before this day ends. But for, for those of us who are followers of Christ, what we long for, right, is to hear this. Come on in. <laughs> you were guilty, but I took care of the charges. You're, you're safe. Come on in. Enjoy the benefits and the bounty of heaven. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Isn't that what we want to hear? Yeah, but according to Jesus, not everybody that even thinks they're going to hear that will hear that. Just listen to what he says in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, went into the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. All that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name or cast out demons in your name or, or do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, and listen to this verdict, I never knew you. Wow. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so we're diving into what some have called the gospel of Paul, not this Paul, but Paul in the Bible, um, like the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. This is, some have called it the gospel of Paul. It's, it's the book of Romans in your Bible, the letter that's written to a, a group of Christ followers in Rome, a, a place that Paul had never been. But for those of us who are, are, are somewhat familiar with the scripture, this is like Mount Everest. This is it. I mean, this is... This is all about theology. I mean, this book has more about who God is and, and what He does and what that should mean to us. It's a book that's been called soteriological because it, it speaks to our salvation and how we are saved and, and what our salvation should look like and what it means to be saved. Man, this is a great book in the Bible and in these first few verses in Romans chapter 1, we have kind of an outline of where Paul is going in his letter to the church at Rome. And really, as we end these verses we're about to read today, you're going to see the theme. The theme of this whole letter summed up in, in, in this first chapter, not even halfway through this chapter. And I think this is going to be important for you, because as you examine God's Word here in this first chapter of Romans, I think you're going to see that God has given you something that changes everything. And how you respond to what He's given you makes a huge difference in this world and in your life. 
really the message of Romans is that you have ability to influence the verdict over your life. How you respond to what God has done, it affects that verdict. So let's dive in. And, and so please, 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 this is a place where we regularly use God's Word. So whether you have it on a phone or, or whether you have a copy of the Bible like I do here or however you use it, bring your Bible with you because you really want to dig in and, and make sure I'm not making this stuff up, right? You want to make sure it's real. And then find something to, to jot some notes on and get something to write with, a pen, pencil, lipstick, mascara, Crayola, your big old thumbs, whatever it is. And, and let's ask God to speak to us through his word. That's what we want. You don't, you don't need a, a speech from a man. You need a word from God. So Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul. <laughs> That's a good place to stop. <laughs> um, I like that name. I'm named after this guy. I really am. My parents named me after Paul in the Bible. And, and so this is Paul, who used to be called Saul, who who made a name for himself because he hated Christ's followers. So imagine if there were someone today that while we were in here, they were outside with one of those megaphones just talking about how much they hate us and how we're idiots and, and how what we believe is not true. And then as we left this building, uh, imagine that they begin to throw stuff at us and, and cuss at us. I mean, that's the kind of guy that Paul was as he was known as Saul toward Christians. But he met Jesus. Amen. He met Jesus. And it, there's this place in the Bible in, in Acts chapter 9, it's called the Damascus Road. He comes in contact with the risen Christ and, and he really falls on his face. And that's what all of us do when we meet Jesus that first time. We recognize that, man, we're we're nothing before a holy God and we need him and and then we encounter him and and then we do as Paul did and we call him Lord. And later Paul would say one day every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. And what will they say? They'll say that Jesus Christ is Lord. And and so that's what it means to be a follower of Christ that he is the Lord, that he's the one who calls the shot. He's the one who makes the decision. He's the one who's the boss. He, he's the one that determines our, our life path, that, that we're not in charge, but that he's the Lord. And so that's the guy that's writing this. His life has been radically changed. And then he gives us a little bit of his resume. He says, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And we think of this as Paul the apostle, this biblical giant, but all three of those should be said of every Christ follower, right? You're a servant of Christ. If, if we're going to follow Jesus, we live like he lived. And, and Jesus said he didn't come to be served. He came to serve. So we live our lives wanting to impact the lives of other people. And then he was an apostle, which literally means to be sent out. And you are to be the sent ones. So in just a few moments, we're going to leave this building. And man, some smart men, way smarter than me, man, they built this building. And, and it's a great building built by the hands of man. But we're going to go into a world that God spoke into existence. 
And that's where you're sent out. So the, the purpose is just to come in here and, and get encouraged and, and get motivated and really to, to get enthused and then to be sent. Your servants who were sent. And then he says, I'm set apart. And guess what? You're supposed to be set apart. You're supposed to be different. And this doesn't just this isn't just about being legalistic. I don't drink and I don't chew and I don't go with girls that do. No, it's not that, but it, it does mean that if Jesus is residing within me, I should be different from this world in which I live. This first verse also tells us what Paul's life and what the book of Romans is all about. He says, I'm set apart for what? The gospel. The gospel. Say the gospel. God wants, if, if you're a follower of Christ, God wants your life to be characterized by the gospel. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. So in other words, this is not a new, a new thing. Uh, God, all of the Bible is about God's plan to deliver his people God's grace for his people in different ways. Uh, he, concerning the son, it says in verse 3, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the, say, of the faith for the sake of his name among the nations. And, and here we, we find really what we're supposed to be living for. We, we live our life, it says, for the obedience of the faith. So if you're a Christ follower, your life should be characterized by obedience, not disobedience. That means you should be doing those things that God's Word says, do this. And you should be seeking not to do those things that God says, don't do that. That's the obedient life. And we're going to fail. We're sinners. This side of heaven, we're never going to be perfect. But we're striving for holiness. We're seeking to live in the obedience of the faith. Why? For the sake of his name. Right? When we're different, then people see maybe there's something to this God. But not just for the sake of his name. For the sake of his name among all the nations. Say all the nations. Do you realize how many nations there are? I, I was in an Uber in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm talking to this guy, and I, I'm beginning to talk to him ab about where he's from, and he, he mentions the name of his country, and I'm like, what'd you say? And he mentions it again, and I'm like, no, no, say it again real slow. And he said it again, and I finally said, I have never heard of that country. Do you realize there are nations you've never heard of? And yet we live in a multicultural world, and, and we're in a multi-ethnic church. I mean, we've got people from 60 or 70 nations right here in our church. Isn't that awesome? That's pretty cool. But that's not even close to the number of nations and the number of people groups in the world. Because even in some nations, like when I go to Nigeria, I, I realize, man, there's a bunch of different languages, a, a bunch of different people groups in that one country. And in our world now, there are 17,433 different people groups. That's a lot. 60 or 70, I mean, we're not even scratching the surface. But here's what's crazy. Of all those people groups... 
there are 7,418 of them that we consider they're unreached. There's no prevalent presence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's, there's no presence of, of, of gospel churches like this that are known and making a difference in their community. 7,418 people groups. You know how many people that is? That's 3.29 billion people. A lot of us grew up in Christian, Christian America. And we don't realize that from the beginning, 2,000 years ago, when, when the gospel began to be preached, the whole purpose of the preaching of the gospel was to get the message to the nations. We think about those people groups, and the reality is there are 3,050 people groups. That's 278 million people who are not only unreached, they're unengaged. Nobody's even trying to, to tell them the story of Jesus. Let me just tell you something. We're not becoming more reached in our country. We're becoming less reached. And so when we hear a verse that says, man, this is about getting the message out for the obedience of the faith, for the sake of his name, to the nations, then our ears better perk up because we recognize there's a lot of people in a lot of nations that never have heard the gospel. And remember our premise? The premise is most of us, we say we're Christians. So we say, yeah, I've got it. I got it. I'm good. And yet this is part of our responsibility. And so I begin to wonder, when will we become uncomfortable with the reality that billions of people are literally dying without Christ and headed into an eternity in a place the Bible calls hell while we just are content with with kind of a good show on Sunday mornings. It's not the way it should be. Well, we're just trying to read his introduction. And so he, um, he says, verse 6, In including you who are called to belong to Christ. So you who are living in obedience to the faith and who are, uh, for the sake of the name of Jesus, trying to get the gospel to the nations, that, that's you. And to all those in Rome who are loved by God and are called saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So here he is. Paul has never been to Rome, but he's saying, man, everybody's talking about y'all. Your church is on fire. I mean, you guys are alive for Jesus. You've got a reputation. And that just reminds me, we've all got a reputation. What's your faith reputation? People you work with, people your neighborhood, your classmates, your teammates. They probably know you're here, maybe. Where does your faith reputation extend beyond that? For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So just so you know the story, Paul has longed to go to Rome. 
He's been all over the known world, but he's never made it to Rome, which was the New York City, uh, the Paris, France, the London, England of that day. I mean, it was the place. And he's saying, so I've just prayed nonstop. And, and so I would just ask you, what's the last thing you've prayed for without ceasing? Is it anything related to getting the gospel to the nations? Or is it more about, oh, I've prayed without ceasing that I'd get a better job? Or I've prayed without ceasing that I wouldn't have the pain I have. Or I've prayed without ceasing that I'd have a nicer house or a bigger car. Now, Paul understood that there was power in prayer and that prayer power could be used to accomplish the purpose for which God had left him here. Do you believe that? That was not a rhetorical question. Do you believe there's power in prayer? So... Um, Last weekend, I was preaching to these college students in northern New York, and I started looking at the map. My flight didn't leave until Monday, and I realized, I am next to Vermont. And that just sounds cool, Vermont. I mean, I think somewhere up here is where Bob Newhart used to have a bed and breakfast. I mean, this is a cool place. And, and so I decided to go over and spend a night in Vermont. And then I got to thinking, this is where so much of our religious heritage in this country was birthed and, uh, and the great awakenings and, and many of the movements of God, like the Ivy League schools that we have today, like Prince of Yale, Harvard, those started as divinity schools. I mean, God's word was powerful in that region that now is very dark. And so I began to Google, what are some places I could visit? And I found that there was a town, Williamston, Massachusetts, just below Vermont, that if I went there, there was a college called Williams College that had been there a long time. And in 1806, on the campus of Williams College, there were five students, five college students, that in the midst of a thunderstorm, hid under a haystack and began to pray and say, God, would you use us for your glory for the nation's and five guys begin to pray and say, God, our yes is on the table. Whatever you want us to do. And you can go there now, and there's a monument at Williams College in Williamston, Massachusetts, to those five guys. Why? Because as a result of that prayer, five guys, not a church full of people, five guys. As a, not the hamburger place. As a result of the prayer of five guys, the modern missions movement was born. So for those of us that are a little familiar with church, names like William Carey or Adonai Judson or, or Lottie Moon, we wouldn't know those names had these individuals not prayed and said, God, with open hands and an open heart, our yes is on the table. So that's what we're going to do right now. So if you're a follower of Christ, maybe you just hold out your hands like this and we're going to pray with our eyes open because I just like doing that sometimes. My daughter never closes her eyes when she prays, so I'm like, why should I? And so... Um, Father, thank you that I get to gather with my brothers and sisters and I'm looking around and, and I love these folks and I've gotten to know a lot of them. Some of them are new to me and I can't wait to know them, but God, you've brought us together by appointment at this moment. And we've worshiped you and we've been up under your word and, and now here we are with our hands open and we just say, we're different, but we really want to live for the same purpose. We want to accomplish what you want us to accomplish. So God, we put our yes on the table. Wherever you lead, we'll go and whatever you say, we'll do. And God, we want to be known for the obedience of our faith. And we want to help 
get the message of the gospel to the nations through our lives and through our prayers and through our finances and through your church. So God, we believe that just as you work through five guys in Williamson, Massachusetts, you can work in our lives and you can work through this church. So would you do it, Lord, for your glory? And would you do it in the name of Jesus? And all God's people said, amen, amen. But we're just, we're still just reading this, right? Um, verse 11, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And hey, that really, that's what you should be doing when you gather with other believers. You should be sharing your gifts with them. If you're a follower of Christ, it's never okay for you just to say, um, I'm just soaking it in right now. It's just kind of a resting season. No, no, you're supposed to be sharing with other believers your gifts that you may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far I've been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. And then notice, these next few verses just really get at the heart of, of what he's trying to communicate. I am under obligation. Say this, say, I'm obligated. Have you ever been obligated? Yes, you have. You got electricity? Well, each month, you better pay that bill. Are you not going to have electricity? You're obligated to pay it. You got water coming out of the faucet in your sink? You're obligated to pay that water bill or that's going to stop coming out. So he's saying, I'm obligated. Another way you could think of this, and he refers to it, I am indebted to you. And there's a couple of different ways to be indebted. You can be in debt like I, I borrowed from someone and I owe them. Or you can be in debt um, by being the pass-through. So in other words, if Ray says to me, hey, pastor, I've got a $100 bill that I need you to get to Steve, but I don't know if I'll see Steve. What, can you get it to him? Uh, I can take that $100 bill to him and then guess what? I am indebted to Ray, but I'm also indebted to Steve because it's not my money. And so Paul's saying, I'm obligated because I have received this great treasure from God. He has changed me. I'm a different person. And, and so I am obligated, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish. And then he says, so I'm eager. Say, I'm eager. Are you? I don't think so. Most of us aren't. Man, I struggle with being eager. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. How would our world be different if those of us who say we're following Jesus were eager to tell somebody? And then he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul had been imprisoned in Philippi, chased out of Thessalonica, smuggled out of Damascus and Berea. He had been laughed at in Athens and Corinth. He had been called a fool. He had been declared a blasphemer and a lawbreaker in Jerusalem. He had been stoned and left for dead in Lystra. But he wouldn't, because he couldn't, back down from the gospel. And so here in verse 16, he gives us what's going to be the theme of this deeply theological book. He says, I am not 
ashamed. You know my problem? Too often I act ashamed. I had just preached a missions conference, three messages, preached my heart out. God moved in a mighty way up in New York. I, I boarded a flight in Albany, sitting next to this big guy, heading to Atlanta. You know what I did? I just put in my earphones. And I just closed my eyes. I think too often in my life, though I'm not in my heart, right? That's what we would say. I've got a good heart. I, I live as if I'm ashamed. And that's really weird because in our culture, I mean, there's not shame about anything. I mean, we're in a shameless culture. I mean, just go downtown Tampa. Shoot, just walk down Fowler Avenue. Turn on the TV. There's no shame. People have no shame about their sinful choices, about their sexual exploits, about their personal habits. And yet those of us who say we're following Jesus, the truth is we, as they say where I was growing up, the proof's in the pudding. It looks like it sounds like, we act like we're ashamed. So I've got a simple message for you today. Don't be ashamed. <laughs> Don't be ashamed. There's no good reason to be ashamed of this relationship you have with God that is described in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to make my case, I'm going to give you the fastest seven points, seven reasons you shouldn't be ashamed that you've ever heard. Number one, don't be ashamed because this is good news. This is good news. I want you to think about that best news you ever heard. You got it in your mind? Think about it. It should be bringing a smile to your face. And some of you need to do this because you're frowning. And they tell me that frowning is much harder work. It takes more muscles to frown. And some of you are working yourself to death right now. So I, I want you to think about that. What, what is this good thing, this good news that you have in your life? Maybe it's when you heard, you passed <laughs> the test. Or maybe it's when she said yes. Or when you heard this, it's a boy, it's a girl. Or maybe this, you won! Or how about this one? It's not cancer. Boy, that's some good news. The gospel is good news. That's literally what it means. It comes from a, an old English, Middle English word that meant God's spell. Not spell like a witch's spell, but a, a God story or a good story. So this is the message about God that is good. And we're going to see for everyone that hears it. So most people, the reason we act ashamed is because we're afraid we're going to get rejected. The reason I plop those earplugs in is because... I'm thinking, he doesn't want to talk to me. I could look at him. I was trying to judge the body language like I've got ESP or something. 
but we're afraid we're going to get rejected. But here's what I want you to understand. Why would you get rejected about good news? In a bad news world where there's war, where there's pain, where there's difficulty, where there's death everywhere you turn, we've got good news. But it's only good news if it makes it there in time. That's why we can't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. This is good news. But don't be ashamed. This is from God. Paul says this is the gospel from God. In other words, the God, the God who hung the stars into space, the God who's laughing in heaven because some scientist on this blue planet thinks, we just discovered a new star. What are we going to name it? Let's call it Bob. This God who created everything that is and he spoke it into existence, this God says, I've got some good news for you. God is for you. God loves you. So why would I be ashamed of, of letting somebody else know that God loves us and he cares about us. Don't be ashamed. This is good news. This is from God. But don't be ashamed because this is about Jesus. See, I, I think one of the reasons I don't tell people more often about Jesus is because I guess I'm thinking about me. I'm worried that they may look at something I've said or something I've done or, or like look at my life. or I'm worried that I don't have the right words. It's not about me and it's not about you. It's about Jesus. And so Paul, man, he gives us a long description. He says, this is about the one who was promised in the Old Testament. It's, it's about the one who came out of the line of David. It's about the one who was 100% man, but he's 100% God. I mean, this is about the God-man, Jesus. And there's never been one like him. There's no one like Jesus. And so if we really believe that, if we want to amen and clap that, why would I keep that to myself? That's what separates what we believe from every other religion in the world. We believe that Jesus is God. It's about Jesus. Don't be ashamed. This is good news. It's from God. It's about Jesus. But this has great power. He says it's the power for our salvation. Just think about that. What we have, if you're a follower of Jesus, what you have within you has the power to change lives. It has the power to take someone who's living in darkness and show them light. It has the power to take someone who's headed to hell and give them heaven. Not everybody will understand that. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, what does that mean? That means when you tell somebody else it's not dependent upon your ability. It's the power of God working in you. So if you act unashamed and you share with someone what Jesus means to you and they don't receive, you didn't blow it. They didn't respond to the power of God. But let me just tell you what I've seen in 30 years of ministry. I've seen the, the power of God break addictions in people's lives where they didn't think they could live without alcohol or drugs. I've seen the power of God restore a marriage. I'm thinking of one marriage several years ago, uh, more than 15 years ago. A man, a deacon in the church, called me up. He said, I'm done. It's over. 
I said, come talk to me. He said, I don't want to talk to you. I've, I've had it. I'm walking out of this marriage. I said, give me 15 minutes. Just come by my office. I'll wait here. Sunday afternoon, we begin to talk, and I begged him. I said, man, just give God a chance to work his power in your marriage. He gave God that chance to do a marriage miracle. Here 15 years later, they're, they're happily married. They're serving the Lord. I've seen the power of God do that. I've seen the power of God take people that are fighting diseases and heal them. I've seen the power of God in other people that are fighting diseases give them the ability to smile and to have the peace that passes understanding even though they've not been healed. This is the power of God. And it's what Paul would later describe in this way. He would say, it gives you the ability to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what you've ever asked, dreamed, or imagined. Why? Because of the power that's at work within you. Not your power but his power. We look at what's going on in the Ukraine and we think about nuclear bombs for the first time in decades. And the truth is, to our knowledge, the largest power that has ever been created in nuclear power and the largest bomb of a nuclear bomb was created many years ago by Russia. It's known as the Soviet RDS-220. It weighs over 60,000 pounds. It was so powerful that when they tested this, they told the pilots that there's a 50% chance that you won't even survive the blast when you drop the bomb. It exploded. It was visible from 620 miles away. The cloud went 40 miles high. That's seven times the height of Mount Everest. It released power equivalent to 50 megatons of TNT. That's 1,570 times the combined power of the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Ten times the power of all the conventional bombs dropped in World War II. And you think of that power, or you look at positions of authority, or, or you think about people like Elon Musk who seem to have all the money in the world, and you think, now, that is power. But the reality is, regardless of the military might, and regardless of the position you hold, and regardless of the money you have, you don't have the power to change one life. But there's that kind of power in the gospel. That's who God is. That's what He does. The church is not the power of God. Religion is not the power of God. Work is not the power of God. Only the gospel is the power of God. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. This is good news. It's good news from God. It's good news from God that's about Jesus. It's good news from God about Jesus that has great power. It's good news from God about Jesus that has great power. That is for everyone. Say it's for everyone. You believe that? We don't act like we believe it. We, we don't act like our neighbors could be changed or our coworkers could be changed or our classmates could be changed if only they knew this gospel of Jesus. And all the time I come in contact with people that are, they live their life like I did on that last airplane drive. And they, they would say things like this, Pastor, I, man, you just don't understand. My faith is deeply personal to me. And I do understand, your faith should be deeply personal, but it's never intended to be private. It's not okay for your faith to be private. This is for everyone. Classmates and teammates and coworkers and neighbors and family members and community acquaintances, everybody. You want to know what kind of difference you can make in 1855 
a Sunday school teacher by the name of Mr. Kimball. He led a Boston shoe salesman to faith in Christ. That guy's name was D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody became a great evangelist. In 1879, he awakened the zeal of, of a man named Frederick Meyer. Frederick Meyer also began to be on fire in his faith, and he led a young man named Wilbur Chapman to the Lord. And Wilbur Chapman became an evangelist, and he began to work with a retired baseball player who was kind of rough around the edges, and his name was Billy Sunday. But Billy Sunday, man, he got so excited for the Lord that when you were just around him, he's kind of like my friend Pastor Zach, when you were just around him, you wanted more of Jesus. And Billy Sunday, he teamed up with a guy named Mordecai Ham, and he said, we need to have a revival in Charlotte, North Carolina. And Mordecai Ham, he preached in that revival service, just like I'm preaching today. And there were some young men in the choir behind him. And one of those young men heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and he recognized that even though he was on the stage singing in the choir, he had never met the Jesus that Paul met on that Damascus road and he needed to get saved. So he got out of the choir, he went down and he got saved that night. And his name was Billy Graham. And because Billy Graham got saved, more than two million people have walked out of their seats in Colosseums in theaters, in stadiums around the world, and they've given their life to Christ. But one day, one day there was a pastor that felt like quitting everything, ministry, life, everything. And he wasn't at church. He was sitting in his brother's home in Orlando, Florida, Everybody else was asleep, and he just started flipping through the TV channels. And he came across a Billy Graham crusade. But it wasn't Billy Graham that he saw that day. Because the Billy Graham that got saved had brought people around him, and it was a man named George Beverly Shea singing. And he was singing, It is no secret what God can do. What he's done for others, he'll do for you. With arms wide open, he'll pardon you. It is no secret what God can do. And because a Sunday school teacher named Mr. Kimball shared with a shoe salesman named D.L. Moody, whose gospel line went all the way to Billy Graham, That preacher got out of that recliner that day, and he's standing before you today, and he's saying, we can't be ashamed of the gospel. But Paul also says, don't be ashamed because this is how you get right. I just need you to know we ain't right. We're not born right. No matter how many self-help books you read or encouraging things people say to you, you are born separated from God, and everyone you see is born the same way. But the gospel, the gospel is how you get right. The gospel fixes that which is broken. That's why we got to preach it to ourselves every day. Because it's the gospel that's going to help you in your broken marriage. It's the gospel that's going to help you with your broken finances. It's the gospel that's going to help you with your broken relationship. It's the gospel that's going to help you when you feel like giving up. Because none of us, it says in Romans 3.10, none of us is righteous, no, not one. But the last thing I would tell you is you can't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed because this is, this is just really simple. <laughs> 
he ends with what is really the ultimate theme of Romans. The righteous shall live by faith. You know what he doesn't say? The righteous will live by religion. The righteous will live by ritual. The righteous will live by Sunday morning church attendance. The the righteous will live by giving at the special offering. No, the righteous live by faith. We walk by faith. Aren't you thankful? Aren't you thankful that he doesn't say it's, it's how you behave? It's not how you behave, it's how you believe. But if we really believe what we say we believe, it's going to affect all these things in our life. It's not what we do. We simply share the good news. Like this young man. Years ago at the University of Southern California, there was a philosophy professor, and he prided himself. Every year at the end of the semester, he, he would stand before the students and convince them that none of them any longer believed in God. It was his goal to make them all atheists like he was. So he said, if there's anybody in this classroom on the last day, if there's anybody here who still believes in God, stand up. And then he would always say this, of course you're not going to stand. Because if there was a God, you could ask him to stop this piece of chalk from falling and breaking, and he could do it. But there's not a God, and he won't. And every year, for 20 years, he would drop that piece of chalk. It would fall to the floor and break into a lot of pieces. Until one year where there was a young man who knew he needed to take that class, but he happened to be a person of faith. So in the years leading up to that, he began to prepare. In the couple months before it came time to take that professor, he was praying, God, give me strength. I want to be able to stand at the end of the semester. He went through the whole semester. The end of the semester came. The professor said, if there's anybody here that still believes in God, you stand up. And that young man stood up. (laughs) He said, you idiot. You're a fool, because if there was a God, you could pray to him and he could stop this piece of chalk from falling to the ground and breaking into all these pieces. But he, he won't, because there is no God. He dropped that piece of chalk, but it got caught in his, um, the cuff on his shirt, and then it kind of bounced down and got stuck in the pleat on his pants, and then it kind of rolled down his pant leg and rolled off of his shoe and then just gently rolled onto the floor. In one piece. He was needless to say flabbergasted. So he picked up his notebook and he walked out. And that young man came to the front of the classroom. And he said I just want you to know there is a God. He may not always answer the prayers the way you want them to. But there is a God. And he's worth standing up for. See, what I want you to say is you don't need to be ashamed. Our God is worth standing up for. And so today, if you're a Christ follower, that's your assignment. Stand up for God this week. Find a way in your little corner of the world to stand for Jesus, to stand for the gospel. Don't be ashamed. And we want to make it easy for you. Because you can look at these banners behind me or this image on the screen, and you can remember just these four things that help you share what the gospel means to you. You look at that man and you realize we are all created equal. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. All of us are born 
wrong. We're separated from God. We're broken. We're sinful. And if you take that sin and you put it on a balancing scale, no matter how good you are, the sin is always going to outweigh the good. And that's always going to declare you guilty. But our God, our God is the King of kings. He has all authority. He has all power. He can do whatever he wants. And our God demonstrated his love. And that while we were still guilty, while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. And that cross, when you see that cross, you can understand that there's nothing you have to do. Because he's done it all. You just have to look to him in faith. Because the righteous will live by faith. Now some of you are saying, I wish I had a way I could remember that. And so today when you came in, we gave you this little armband. If you didn't get one because you thought, I don't want that. Now you know what it is. You need to get one when you leave. And it has those symbols. It's simple. Again, it took me about 60 seconds to go through it. You see that man? We're all in the same boat. Every one of Mankind is born the same way, separated from God, and that causes us to sin and be out of balance, and that sin causes us to be guilty before God. But God's the King of kings, and He can do what He wants to, so He sent His Son, Jesus, and Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of our guilt and to make a way for us. And if you needed to know where that comes from, Romans 1.16 is on here, which just reminds you that you don't need to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friend, hear me. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Let's bow our heads together. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and you know that, your assignment is simple. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Ask God to give you an opportunity today, this week, to to share your faith in Christ. You don't have to have a seminary degree. You don't even have to have perfect attendance at Sunday school. You can just use the pictures on that little armband and say that Jesus died on the cross to trade your guilt for His grace. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. If you came in and you're wearing one of those little yellow armbands, maybe you would just grab that right now and just say, God, this is my commitment to you right now. I'm, I'm going to look for opportunities this week. Now, if you're here, and I, I believe there's a good chance somebody's here and you're not a Christ follower. I told you, most of what we're talking about is, was focused toward Christ followers. But if that's not you... Maybe today would be your day of salvation. Because this good news, this good news that God loves you and that God loves you so he sent Jesus and Jesus died for you and and that Jesus gives you the power to handle whatever is holding you back in life and, and that that power is for you just as clear as it's for everybody. Man, that kind of good news, it changes everything for you. So why would you walk away from it? So maybe today you just need to tell God, I'm ready to walk by faith. I'm ready to follow you, Jesus. Maybe you'd pray this prayer. You'd just say, dear Jesus, I believe you died for me. 
I know you're alive. So here I am. You're my Lord. You're the boss. You're in charge. I resign. I'm, I'm, I'm no longer in control of my life. Just tell him that somehow. I receive your forgiveness. And now by faith, I turn from my sinfulness and I follow you. Oh God, help me to live by faith. I tell him thank you. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I'm going to finish this prayer in a moment. But if you just prayed that with me, in your words or in the words I prayed, and you just began that relationship with Christ, I want to celebrate with you. Don't be ashamed. So I want you just to lift your hand right now. If you just prayed that prayer with me, wherever you're sitting, just lift your hand. Or online, you can just tell the person online that you prayed that prayer. That's the most important thing you could ever do. And if you did that, what I want to invite you to do is to tell somebody. Tell somebody. Ask God even now to show you who you should tell. Okay? And now back to you who are Christ followers. Why don't you ask God that? God, is there somebody that I should tell that I'm not ashamed? Lord, I pray that in these moments as we kind of digest these truths, that you would let it simmer and savor in our lives so that when we leave in a few moments we would leave unashamed of the gospel and, and God as we go this week as we give even in a moment help us to go and give in faith in Jesus name